on now. Sound good? All right. It's a Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I know Memorial Day is tomorrow, but um, I just thought about it again when I was looking at the flowers, and you guys have the, the American flag in there. And of course, we want to remember all those who have fallen so that we can be here right now speaking the Word of God, and we don't necessarily have to worry about stormtroopers coming through our, our doors right now and stopping us from it. Um, so we really thankful, we're thankful for that sacrifice. And I was wondering how many of you have served in the military in the past? I know a couple. <laughs> you're Navy? Navy? Air Force? Air Force? And my, my dad is teaching out there. He's retired Army, and my mom was Army. And uh, it's just a huge um, service that we're thankful for. And obviously, we're still fighting right now. And I've, I watch documentaries all the time of the war and what people went through. And, and it's, I'm just really thankful for the opportunity to be here and be able to worship God with the freedom that we have. So let's begin with prayer. God, I praise you because there's no one else to praise. Um, you are God. Um, I thank you for saving us, uniting us as a body, and giving us your word um, as a lamp unto our feet so that we would know how to live. I thank you for the grace that you've given us here in this nation that we can come freely and worship you. And I just ask that this morning you would <clears throat> use your word to quench our thirst and cause us to be changed, to love you all the more, to want to obey your word all the more and live for you. I love you so much and we praise you. Amen. So on May 13th, the Time Standard had an article in it that you might have read. It's titled, the number um, Americans becoming less Christian and more secular. And it begins like this. It says, The number of Americans who don't affiliate with a particular religion has grown to 56 million in recent years, making the faith group researchers call nuns the second largest in total numbers behind evangelicals, according to the Pew Research Center study released Tuesday. This organization called Pew did two major surveys between 2007 and 2014, and they found that the group that would label themselves as atheists or agnostics grew from 16 to 23% in that time period. Then they also found that today, what makes up of our people that would call themselves Protestant evangelicals in our country is now down to 46.5% which is a huge decline because we used to, even if we weren't necessarily Christian, we used to, at least the majority of us, call ourselves Christians. And I'm always leery whenever I look at some of these newspaper articles because I wonder how, how did they come up with some of these statistics and how many of the people were they talking to um, just said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but yet they don't even know Jesus. But i got to say, when I read it, 
I thought, you know, that's probably pretty accurate. Um, I have talked with a lot of people inside the church and outside the church, of course, who are searching for the truth. People are lost. And it's so dangerous because there's so many people out there that are speaking about so many other whims of doctrine. The days are evil. And they come along and they speak some false doctrine and people are just swayed and they go off into that teaching. We have an identity crisis. And it's been going on since the fall of Adam and Eve. And that's why our series on the church is so important that we're going through in the book of Ephesians. Because we need to know who we are and who God is and what God has called us to live. How we're supposed to live as Christians. We began the series in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Pastor Bob preached from the Word and we learned and remembered that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world by His grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And that when we heard the word of truth spoken, we responded to it and we were saved. We accepted it. And Levi continued the series and teaching and we taught us that we're no longer strangers, but that we're part of this family with Christ being the head of the family. And we learn that because we're God's children, we're members of the family, and we have each been given spiritual gifts. And the reason we have these spiritual gifts is to build one another up until we gain maturity, until we reach the fullness of Jesus Christ, unity in Jesus Christ. And then Levi used this great analogy. I'm going to steal last of your stuff off this. <laughs> um, Levi uses this great analogy of the church being built up and so that if you're at a distance and you look at the church of Jesus Christ, you see this structure, a temple. And then as you walk closer to the temple, you look more closely and you see that it's made up of members of the body of Christ with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the head of the body of Christ, holding the whole structure together. And so that brings us to the middle of chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles and you would like to follow along, or you can follow along up here, we're going to start with verse 17. Chapter 4, Ephesians, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another, one of another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon those upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. That is a very powerful, powerful passage that hopefully we can unpack right now this morning. So since we've identified who we are as children of God, members of His family, and we know that we've each been given spiritual gifts, the reason that we have these spiritual gifts is to build up the body until we attain maturity in the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have been called to live a new way of life. We are a new creation. Our old self is to be cast away from us and we're supposed to put on our new self. So what about our old self is it that we're supposed to cast away? Basically, anything and everything in our lives that does not resemble Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, anything in our lives that would hinder us from being built up into the fullness of Jesus Christ. So our passage tells us that we're no longer to live as the Gentiles do. We're not supposed to live 
as anyone that doesn't know God. We're not to be alienated from God. We're not to give ourselves over to sensuality or greed or to practice impurity. We're to put off deceitful desires, which are desires that promise us any false gain. We're to put away falsehood. We're not to lie about anything. Do not sin in your anger. We're not to steal. We're not to tear people down with the things that we say. We're to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander and malice. We're not to be sexually immoral. We're not supposed to be sleeping around with different people before we're married. And then once we're married, we have one partner. We're not to view pornography. We're not to covet. We're to put off crude joking and foolish talking. And then we're not to participate in any of these kinds of lifestyles or hang out with any people who are living these kinds of lifestyles. So this is a ginormous list of sin that we struggle with all the time that we are called to cast off, told to put it away. And all of this sin has something in common. It is all rooted in selfishness. None of these things that we're supposed to cast off, all of this sin has to do with self. It doesn't build anyone else up. It doesn't build ourselves up. In fact, it just does the opposite. It just tears us down. It tears us apart. And as we've been reminded, as we've been going through this series, we know that the Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, in their culture is a lot like our American culture in the sense that it had a lot of problems with things like sexual sin. In fact, we have learned that they worshipped many different gods, and one of the gods that they worshipped was, I'm not going to say it in Greek, um, Diana. And one of the ways that they worshipped Diana were to have drunken orgies. They taught that if you're in this state of drunkenness and you're involved in orgies, that you're going to be able to commune with their goddess Diana, this false god. I found one statistic which said that the United States, our so-called Christian nation, produces 24 times more pornography than all other countries on the face of the earth. Our pornography industry in the United States is a $13 billion industry. 70% of 18 to 24-year-old males in our country visit porn sites on the Internet on a monthly basis. 28,000 Internet users view porn every second. 75 million view it monthly, and 43% of Internet users that actually admitted it say that they visited porn sites at least once. In the United States alone, listen to this, has 244 million taxed pornography websites. 'sin is rampant not just in our culture but in our church not necessarily this one I don't know <laughs> I just mean in the church as a whole sexual sin is selfish it is a quest for personal satisfaction that's why someone can go and pick up a prostitute and not even need to know her real name you don't care 
who that person is. It is not something that you want to help someone else without. You, you just want what you can get out of it. It is selfishness. All sin is selfishness. It's all rooted in idolatry. And it has nothing to do with building up other people. Sin lifts up anything other than God and its end is destruction. Chapter 5, verse 5 tells us, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If we continue living a life of sin, then it's evident we don't know God. And if we don't know God, then we're never going to live with God one day and we're going to burn in hell for all eternity. However, um, to help some of us out because we know that we're all sinners, um, if we are saved, if we do know Jesus, we get reassurance in verse 30 in chapter 4 which says that if indeed we are Christian, we have been sealed for the day of redemption. If we're Christian, it's because God chose us and He sealed us. We are His. And because we're His, He has given us the ability to put to death sin in our lives. We can conquer sin by the Holy Spirit's work inside of us. We are going to continue struggling with a life of sin until one day we're with God and we are able to put off our old self and put on our new self. But until then, um, we do have the Holy Spirit at work inside of us. Sin no longer has dominion over us and therefore there should be evidence of victory over sin in our lives. And through victory over sin, we can put on the life that we're supposed to live the focal point of this whole message this morning is Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We have a huge contrast here. The life that we're supposed to put off and the life that we're supposed to put on. Our actions, how we live our lives, reflect who we are. When our lives are dominated by sin, people look at us and we have a selfish identity. When we put on the life of Christ, we have a selfless identity. A life of sacrifice which reflects who God is and in turn is pleasing to God. We're commanded to imitate God. Literally, we are commanded to mimic God. It's amazing that God, the sovereign, the ruler of all creation, the one that formed us in the room, in the womb, um, has called us to mimic him, literally to imitate God. And I, I think about that and I wonder, is it really possible to mimic God? And it makes me think of my relationship uh, with my own kids. Naomi and I have three children. And we like to look at them and see different traits in them that we can recognize. You know, lots of times I'll, I'll see James and I'll say, yeah, he gets that from your side of the family or Amy's there. And I say, you know, you're so beautiful just like your mom. Brownie points. 
and as a parent, I want to look at my children and see things about them that are familiar, things that resemble Naomi and I. Similarly, God looks at his children and he wants to see himself reflected in us, and he wants others to see himself in us. I couldn't help but think of a song um, by Stephen Curtis Chapman. I know I'm going to get some this. But there's so many different songs that were going on in my head while I'm reading this passage and I'm studying. But Stephen Curtis Chapman has a song called The Fingerprints of God. And I am going to quote some of it. I'm not going to sing it. I might have sung it when I was on my own. Um, it says, I can see the tears filled in your eyes, and I know where they're coming from. They're coming from a heart that's broken in two by what you don't see. The person in the mirror doesn't look like a magazine. Oh, but when I look at you, it's clear to me that I can see the fingerprints of God when I look at you. You're a masterpiece that all creation quietly applauds. That's Ephesians chapter 3 right there. That all creation quietly applauds, and you're covered with the fingerprints of God. Never has there been, and never again will there be another you, fashioned by God's hand and perfectly planned to be just who you are. And what he's been creating since the first beat of your heart is a living, breathing, priceless work of art. And I can see the fingerprints of God when I look at you. When God looks at you and I, and when the people around us look at you and I, they should see that we belong to our Creator. Our lifestyle should resemble our new identity in Christ. So exactly what is it that we're supposed to put on? What does our passage tell us to put on? It says we're to be true, righteous, and holy. We're to speak the truth. Give no opportunity to the devil. Do honest work. Share with those in need. Speak with words that build others up. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. We're to walk in love. We're to be an offering to God. We're to be thankful for all things. We're to be obedient to God's command. We're to walk as children of light, to discern what is pleasing to God. We're to have godly wisdom. We're to make the best use of our time, understand the will of the Lord, and we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we obey this list of commands, then we'll be imitating God, and the world's going to look at us, and they're going to see God for who He is, and God's going to get the glory, and they're going to want God, and they're going to be saved. God reveals Himself to us in many different ways, and one of the ways that God reveals Himself to His children and His people is through the church. As I grow in my relationship with God, even though um, I struggle with sin, I, I constantly, I want more of God. I want more of Christ, and I want to sin less. But sometimes I struggle with sin so much. Like, I can come here and, and hear a wonderful sermon about God, a true message, um, be worshiping with God, fellow believers, singing on my own in the car, worshiping God, and one hour later, completely fall off a cliff. And I 
look at my life sometimes and I wonder, am I even saved? Do I even know God? Because it sure does not seem like it right now. And then I think about um, chapters like Romans chapter 7 where Paul's a divided man and he's talking in there and he says, the the things that I don't want to do, I do. But there is an awesome message, a truth (laughs) that is in this passage and that is this. God does not give his children a command without giving them the ability to follow through with that command. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, even though I am feeling like maybe I don't even know Christ, when I start to put to practice these different things that we've been told to put to practice in our own lives as I'm saturating myself with the Lord, the Holy Spirit drinks that and loves that and starts to well up inside of me. And I know I am a child of God. God never gives us a command that He's not going to give us the ability to obey. Our strength and our ability to imitate God can be accomplished by living a Spirit-filled life. So there's two questions that would be helpful to have answered here. One is this. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And secondly, how do we live a Spirit-filled life? So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? So the most helpful resource that I had when I was studying this passage came from Levi's Seminary Notes. And in it, um, what was explained were the Greek words used for the word filled. I do not know Greek. But I do know how to read English, and so I looked at the Greek word explained in English, and so that's what I'm going to relate to you. Levi told me don't even try to say um, the Greek words, but uh, it's plerao, plerao, plerao. Ephesians 5.18, the word filled is plerao. That word is different than the Greek word pimplami used in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, there is the filling of the Holy Spirit that comes upon the people, and it was the day of Pentecost. That is pimplamy. That is not a command. Okay, That is just something that God did. God, it was totally passive. People were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then the word was spoken so that people would come to know Christ. That's a different word that is used in Acts chapter 2. It's used eight times in Scripture. Our word is the plural form of pleris, right? Pleris is used five times in the New Testament, and plerao is used twice, so seven if you combine those. So Ephesians 5.18 is plerao, and it's an imperative. It's a command that we're given. You and I are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit in this sense. And plurao is also in the plural person, which means that the whole church is commanded to do this. It's not just the specific church in Ephesus. All of us, even today, are commanded to be filled with the Spirit in this sense. Plurao, it's getting harder, 
is in the passive voice, which means that we're commanded to yield to the Holy Spirit's work inside of us. We're told to be actively passive. We are responsible, and at the same time, we're at God's mercy to live a Spirit-filled life. And finally, plerao is in the present tense, which means it is continuous action. It's a continuous action. We're to be continually being filled with the Spirit. Be continually allowing yourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit or be being kept filled. So God's commanding us this morning to be continually allowing ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So as I was getting this concept, and I was trying to think of, okay, so what would be a good analogy of a command that you're also passive to? And I was trying to picture something. This is my own analogy, so therefore it's probably pretty faulty. But I pictured a SWAT team going on a mission in the dark. When a SWAT team dismounts in the dark, they step a few feet away from their vehicles and they wait for five minutes to allow their eyes to adjust to the dark. The SWAT operator has absolutely no control over the function of the eye. The the eye is just going to function however it was created to function. It's going to adjust on its own. However, a SWAT operator does have to have the obedience to wait for the eye to adjust. So, we have a passive command that we are to obey. If we're Christians and we've received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is indwelt inside of us. It is, He is in us. Um, We've never, nowhere in Scripture does it command us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit, or indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That is something that we just have inside of us once we are Christians. So, that's why it's impossible, it is possible to ignore God's command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because even though we have the Holy Spirit in us, as our passage is telling us, we can grieve the Holy Spirit and not obey what he's telling us to do, and therefore not live a spirit-filled life, even though God is inside of us. So there's actions that we can take which help us yield to the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.25 tells us that if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Our yielding to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is a daily submission. It's continual. As we're told in Luke, we're supposed to take up our cross daily and die to ourselves and follow Him. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. The way that we die to ourselves, the way that we live a spirit-filled life is to know God's word and then obey God's word. Our process to become more like God is through knowing and obeying the Bible and God goes where His word goes. To be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by His Word. Colossians 3, 16-17 says, Let the Word of the Lord dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When we fill our lives with God's Word, we'll fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. And as we learn from the Bible, as we're taking in the truth, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit inside will testify to that truth. So it's as if feeding, and then the Holy Spirit wells up within, inside of us, and we become so in love with the Word of God, and where our desire grows so much that we want to obey Him rather than sin. Sin becomes more detestable to us, and righteousness becomes something we want all the more. And when we've learned the Word of God, when we've been given truth, we need to step out in faith and obedience as we're being told to do by the Word and through the Spirit. When the Israelites were told to cross the Jordan River, it wasn't until they were about to take that first step over the water that the water then parted and they were able to walk across on dry land. It is a struggle to live a Spirit-filled life, but it is also a joyful life. Sin constantly creeps in and tries to destroy our testimony, but as we continually walk each day in His Word, we'll end up being consumed to the point of obedience. A lot of people wonder or think it's strange that in verse 18 there's a contrast between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. But it makes complete sense because we all know that if someone has been drinking a lot of wine or a lot of beer, they are under the influence of the alcohol. The alcohol has totally consumed them and they've lost the ability to control themselves. In fact, sometimes you're so drunk that you can't even walk. Another thing to think about when it talks about being drunk is that if a person's drunk one time, they're not going to be drunk for the rest of their life. So you see something that's similar to being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a daily walk to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So if we live our daily lives completely saturated with the Word of God, the Holy Spirit's working within us, we'll drink what we are reading or hearing and then well up inside of us in such a way that we'll lose our desire to sin and instead all we'll want to drink is more truth. Let's fill ourselves with Jesus and drink more deeply in Him. John seven thirty-seven through 38 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink me. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We know that it's like it is like to what it's like to drink Christ. We absolutely desire him all the more whenever we drink him. All of us have tasted and we know what it's like to love him. The most fulfilling times in our lives are times when we're drinking Christ. And our response is exactly what this what our passage this morning is telling us that we're to have. The second half of verse 18 tells us but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always 
and for everyone to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for the Lord. We began seeing that we're children of God. That is who we are. That is our identity. Then we were told that we're supposed to put off a sinful life and to put on this new way of life. And the way that we're able to do that is by living a spirit-filled life. And so here is the evidence of what someone who is spirit-filled, when we're walking around and we're filled with the spirit, this is what evidence is going to be in our lives. Number one, the way we address one another. The way that we're talking with one another should be evident, should be something that builds each other up. The second thing is we're going to worship in song with instruments. Um, Singing is really important to God. It's all over Scripture. It's a response to hearing God's Word. We see that all the time throughout the Old Testament. When we're in here, when we hear the Word of God, when we hear the truth, we want to worship and we want to praise God. If you go to the beginning of uh, Ezekiel, and it's talking about the temple that is going to be erected on the day when Christ returns, if you work out the measurements inside the sanctuary, there's allotted room for a 3,000-person choir inside the temple of God. It is so important to God to hear songs of worship, and it's important to us as well. Singing is first and foremost for us to build us up and to worship God and then also for God to to receive worship. It's so sad sometimes um, that um, styles of worship music are what divide churches. I remember in one of my classes that we were being told this, that one of the biggest divisions that churches have is arguing over, are we going to use a piano to worship? Are we just going to use our voices to sing worship? Um, And people quarrel over this. And we're supposed to be identified with our unity. That's why we have iPods and CDs and stuff, so that if you don't like the specific style of music at church... You can go listen to that and worship with that later. But when we come here as a body together, what we need to be concerned about is, one, the content of the words that we're singing so that it's true. But we need to have the mindset of filling ourselves with the Word of God. And when we are, when we're, when we're so in tune with the Spirit inside of us, when we're being filled with the Word of God in us, we don't care if we're using the piano or we're just singing a cappella with the music that we have. This is characteristic of someone who's living a spirit-filled life. Our lives are to be characterized with thankfulness. When we have Christ in us, when we know who we are and realize that we don't deserve anything, and that everything's to the praise of the glory of His grace, We can't help but be thankful that we're even breathing. No matter what we're going through, chemotherapy, whatever the case may be, it is, God, we praise you. Thank you for another day to proclaim your name. Thank you for saving me. Thank you. 
Thank you that Muslims are moving to the United States so that we don't have to travel as far to go tell them about you. The fruit of the Spirit is also going to be evident in our lives. Galatians 5.22 Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then finally the crescendo, the big picture. Submission to one another out of reverence to God. This is the big idea. Paul uses the word submission 23 times in the New Testament. And this idea of submission is a picture of like a chain of command. Submitting unto one another. Submission is the way in which our unity works. It is at the core of who we are when we're building each other up. As we've learned, we all have different gifts that we use to build up, to submit unto one another. We need each other. How many times have you talked with someone that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, I don't, I don't attend church anywhere. I don't meet with other Christians. It's just my own spiritual life. It's just my union with God. When, when I go fishing out on my boat every Sunday, that's my time with God. There's a huge flaw in that. Not that you can't know God and spend time with Him on your own somewhere. The problem is, is that's not how God designed us to grow. The way that we show the world who He is is by being messy Christians that have to deal with each other in all our different quirks, things that annoy us about each other, things that we like about each other, and then use the gifts that we've been given to build one another up so that when people look at us, they see a holy temple being erected with Christ at the head of the church and they say, wow, God is good. We come together and we work together, we worship together because God is good. And because if we want to grow in our relationship with God, that's the only way we can do it. Fully. We need each other to know God and the world needs us to love each other in order to know God as well. So that 1 Peter 2.12 can happen. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Submission is the very picture of the way that God displays His love in the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all working and glorifying each other. And it's out of this righteous submission that Jesus Christ came to this earth and obeyed His Father to the point of dying on the cross for our sin. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward now for communion.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, we praise you. And I just ask, God, that you would continue to build us up into you. I thank you for our sacrifice. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for making straight whatever we make crooked. And I I just ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Cause us to be students of the Word, lovers of you, and be glorified um, in us and pleased with us, Lord. And please save people through us, through our lives, through the message of you. I love you, Lord. In your name. Amen.